0: The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 5 and verse 14, the 14th verse in the 5th chapter of the epistle to the Ephesians. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. In other words, we are returning this morning to our studies in the epistle to the Ephesians, which we left off at the end of last December, in order that we might call and direct attention to what I regard as incomparably the most important subject that should engage the minds and hearts of Christian people at the present time, namely the subject of revival. The need of an outpouring of the Spirit of God. It isn't that we are ceasing to deal with that because every exposition of the Scripture should urge us in that direction by reminding us of the seriousness of the times in which we live and the fact that the only adequate answer is such a visitation by the Spirit of God. But though we'd for 26 Sunday mornings we dealt with that explicitly and directly by preaching on the subject of revival, we now come back to this study of this epistle to the Ephesians. And as we do so, nothing is more important, of course, than that we should be clear as to the context of this particular statement which we are looking at together this morning. So I would remind you very hurriedly of that. The very word, wherefore, makes us do that. Our theme is introduced with this word, wherefore, because of that, in the light of that. Well, what is that? The answer to the question is that we are here in what we may call the practical section of this epistle to the Ephesians. It began roughly at the beginning of the fourth chapter. The apostle in the first three chapters had been laying down his mighty doctrines. He had been reminding these people of the great truth as it is in Christ Jesus, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And having done so, he now begins to apply all that, to find out that this is not merely something theoretical or academic, that it's all meant to have a very practical intent, and that the Christian life is characterized always by the balance of the two sides, the doctrine and the practice. So he says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you. And so he begins the practical section at the first verse of the fourth chapter. And does so in a still more specific manner in the seventeenth verse of that fourth chapter. Having started on it at the beginning of chapter four, he then went off into a marvelous exposition of the nature of the church. It was almost pure doctrine again. But then back he comes at verse seventeen to the uh, practical application in a more direct manner. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. And then he goes on uh, to describe it. Very well. Here I say, then, we are dealing with very practical, everyday matters. And uh, we are continuing this consideration. Now let us remind ourselves of one other thing. Nothing to me is more fascinating than to observe this great apostle's method. When he deals with practical matters such as he's dealing with here, conversation, behavior, how we should deal with others and so on, you notice that his method is this. He always puts it first in the form of a great principle. Then he comes to his application. Though I am saying that we are in the practical half of this great epistle. We must not run away with the idea that he has said farewell to doctrine, because he hasn't. In this section, what we get is a kind of combination, again, of doctrine and practice. In other words, he picks out certain aspects of doctrine and finds out how, in the light of that, a certain type of conduct is required. In other words, he, he doesn't divorce practice and behavior from doctrine. His argument always is that there should be no real need to press these matters upon Christians if they understand who and what they are. So he reminds them, we should never be doing anything in the Christian life merely for the sake of doing it. We should never live any part of our Christian life simply because somebody's told us to do so. Alas, there are many Christians who seem to me to be doing that. They've been converted, and then they have a code of conduct imposed upon them. They don't understand it. They don't know why they're living it, but it's the thing to do now as a Christian. Now, that's never the apostle's method. He always gives a reason. He always puts it in the form of an appeal, almost to common sense. He says, if you claim this, well, then you can't go on living like that, but you must live like this. And so he's been doing that. The first thing he reminded them of was the fact that they have been Born again. They're not as other Gentiles. They've had this new birth. Well, he says, because you are no longer what you were, you don't go on living as you were. Isn't it obvious? He says, if you claim that you're born again and born of the Spirit, and that you're partakers of the divine nature, well, surely you you don't go on behaving as you used to do before, before any of that had happened to you. Now, that's his first appeal. Then, he, secondly, towards the end of chapter 4, he puts it like this to them. He says, remember that the Spirit of God dwells in you. You claim that as Christians? Well, very well. If that is so, well, don't grieve the, the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed into the day of redemption. It's inconsistent. If you say that you glory in the fact that the Spirit is dwelling within you, well, you can't possibly live in a manner that you know is going to grieve the Spirit. And then the third appeal was, be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. At the beginning of chapter 5, he says, you're children of God. Christ died for you, he gave himself for you, in order that you might be the children of God and might become an offering and a sacrifice to God, as it were, for a sweet-smelling savour, in the sense that he was, because you're in him. Well, now, he says... If you claim that, and if you realize that, you can't possibly go on living as you were living in the past. And that brings us to the present section. Here he again takes up an argument, but it's a slightly different one. The argument now is this that as Christians, we can save ourselves and we must save ourselves that we are now light in the Lord. Ye were sometimes, he says in verse 8, darkness. But now, are ye light in the Lord? Well then, walk as children of light. Now that's the matter that he has taken up in this particular paragraph that we're looking at. Christians are children of the light. They are not only that, they are light in the Lord. And he's pointed out that that means that uh, the main characteristics of our life, the fruit of our life, should be goodness and righteousness and truth. And having put that down as a principle, he says, well, now then, in the light of this, you therefore cannot be partakers with people who are still in darkness. That was verse 7. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. But he doesn't even stop at that. He goes on in verse 11 to say, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. And we saw what that means. Don't take an interest in it. Don't let people get the impression that, after all, that's where your heart is, and you rather like hearing about all this and having fellowship with them in it. No, he says, you can't. You can't mix light and darkness. There's no fellowship there. There's no communion. So don't have any fellowship. But he went further. He said, you must even reprove it have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. And we considered what that meant. It means that we should make perfectly plain and clear what our attitude is toward all this. Of course, we do so in the right and in a loving spirit. If we do it as Pharisees, we might as well not do it at all. We'll do more harm than good. There is a way of speaking the truth in love and reproving that which is wrong and evil. And having said that, he began to say this. He said, all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. In other words, his argument is this. Now you, he says, as people who are light, obviously must reprove darkness. Light always does that. Light always reproves darkness by exposing it. Things happen in the dark, you flash a light, and people are exposed in in their conduct and behavior. Light always exposes, reproves, brings to light the things, the hidden things of darkness. It shows them up, it shows their character, and thereby it reproves them. Now, his argument is that that is the characteristic of light always. Whatever is reproved, he says, is clearly in the light, because it is light alone that can do this. And then, having said that, he proceeds to this general statement, which we are going to look at this morning. He says, the great characteristic of light always is that it reproves, makes manifest, brings clearly forward, shows, exposes. And that is the great characteristic of the Christian gospel. And so he sums up his whole statement about this matter of the Christian being light by saying, wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Now then, what does this mean? Well, it is at one and the same time, as I say, a kind of summing up of this point he's making about the light but it is in addition, of course, a very wonderful reminder to us of what we should be as Christian people, and especially in our relationships with those who are not Christians, which is the Apostle's main point in this particular section. Now then, let us look at what he says. He begins by saying, wherefore he saith And that is his formula, of course, for saying that he is quoting scripture. It is, uh, I could give you many illustrations of uh, this, that uh, this is the apostle's way of uh, introducing a scriptural reference, a scriptural quotation. Well then, says somebody, uh, what scripture is he quoting? And the moment you begin to look into that question, you will find that he is not quoting any one exact or particular scripture. I agree with those who say, That the nearest, probably, is what you find in Isaiah 60, in the first verse, where you read this, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. And yet, you notice, it isn't exactly that. Well, now then, what do we make of this? Well, here, surely, is a very interesting and important point. There are many people who get into difficulties at this point with regard to the whole question of the inspiration of the scripture. How can the apostle say, this is what the scripture says? And then he makes a statement which isn't an exact scriptural quotation. I say it's an interesting point, because it seems to me there's only one answer to it, and it is this. The apostle here himself, under the inspiration and guidance of the same Holy Spirit who inspired Isaiah and the other New Testament writers, is giving the meaning and the point and the purport of quite a number of Old Testament scriptures. That's what he's doing here. He is, as it were, summing up, picking out, emphasizing a statement which is made very frequently, particularly by this prophet Isaiah, but also in various other prophecies and in the Psalms in the Old Testament. And thereby, I would say, we have a most wonderful proof of the inspiration of both the Old Testament and the epistles of the Apostle Paul. If the Apostle Paul were but writing as a man, well, then he would have been very careful to turn up his reference to give the exact wording. But under the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit himself, who put it in one form in the old, puts it in this form in the new. The meaning is identical, and the one is as inspired and as, as authoritative as the other. So that the Apostle Peter is perfectly right when you remember in his second epistle and in the third chapter, he says that uh, there are certain people who misunderstand the epistles and writings of the Apostle Paul, as they do also, he says, the other Scriptures. They rest the Scriptures, he says, to their own confusion and destruction. And he puts the writings of this Apostle in exactly the same category as the Scriptures of the Old Testament. How right it is! It is the same Spirit. It is the same author. It is the same one who guides. So, in passing, I merely say this in passing, It seems to me that this very formula that the Apostle uses and what he does here is a very wonderful uh, lesson to us on the whole doctrine of the inspiration of the Scriptures. However, our immediate matter this morning is this. What is the Apostle saying here? Why does he make this statement to these Ephesian Christians? And here I suggest the answer is this. This is a summary of the Gospel. This is a summary of what the gospel does. Those Old Testament prophets looked forward uh, to the coming of the Messiah, the day of Christ, the day of the gospel. And they asked the question, what will characterize it? And the answer is invariable. It will be a period of light. It will be illumination. It will be a day of knowledge. That's the meaning. Arise, shine, for thy light is come. This is it. It is the light of the gospel. And all the evangelical prophets, and every evangelical passage in the prophet uh, likes to put it in this particular way. Well, now then, says Paul, surely it's unnecessary for me to emphasize this point for you. you. You must know that the whole characteristic of the gospel, era, and dispensation is that it's light, and therefore it is the business of the Christian to be a manifester of this light. To be one who illumines his friends and his circumstances and his surroundings. So that by this verse this morning, we can remind ourselves of the great characteristics of the Christian gospel. Its primary function and purpose. And also, we can test and examine ourselves as to whether we are behaving in this way and manner. Now then, let's look at it like this. What does the gospel do? The answer is that it comes primarily and essentially as a great light. Don't you remember how Matthew, at the beginning of the gospel, of his gospel, makes that quotation and how perfect it is? The people that sat in darkness have seen a great light. There's mankind without the gospel sitting in darkness. What does the coming of the gospel do? Well, it is this flash of light. The people that sat in darkness have seen a great light. Or take the Apostle Paul himself. Isn't this his favorite way of presenting the gospel and its effect? Listen to him in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for instance. God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is the great characteristic of the gospel. What does it do? Well, this is what it does. It comes to men and women and says, Awake thou that sleepest, and rise from the dead, and Christ shall shine upon thee. Now, this is the great characteristic of the gospel, and I'm very happy to call your attention to it this morning, not only as we resume this study of the epistle to the Ephesians, but on this particular Sunday. I cannot imagine anything that is more remote from the function of the Christian church and from the business of the preaching of the gospel than for men to be taking this day as an opportunity to talk about politics and to tell people how to exercise their vote on Thursdays on Thursday. Ah, my friend, it is our duty to do these things as citizens, but I say the business of the Christian church is not to be talking about politics and international affairs. It is to be issuing this mighty call. Awake thou that sleepest, and rise from the dead, and Christ shall shine upon thee. What's needed is not a change of government, Not one party rather than another. It doesn't matter which you have. The darkness remains. And the business of the gospel is to illumine this darkness. That's her task. And if she fails in that task, all her other efforts are vain and useless and a sure waste of energy. Of course, they will be applauded by the world. But the business of the church is not to be applauded by the world. It is to be well-pleasing in the sight of God, her Lord and her Master. Well, very well then, what does she do? Well, the first thing she does is to convict. Awake, arise. Why? Well, realize the position that you're in. And what is this position? Well, it's one of sleep. It is one of death. The trouble with the world, the trouble with all who are not Christians, is that they're in this condition of unconsciousness. And sleep and death are the same in that respect. Both are unconscious, both are unaware of certain matters that are happening round and about them, certain possibilities, certain dangers, they're unaware, sleeping, unconscious. Think of a man in a house on fire, he doesn't know it's on fire, he's asleep. And you rush to him and say, Awake now that sleepest. Get out of it as quickly as you can. What are they unconscious of? They're unconscious and unaware of the most important things in life. The most important things in the world. The apostle has already been saying this at great length in chapter 2. So I don't stay to go through it in detail this morning. You remember how he put it there? He was he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. It means, you see, a deadness to the spiritual realm. It means a deadness to the fact of God and the being of God. It means an unawareness of the soul within, given by God, this peculiar thing that makes man, man, completely unaware of that. And that is the state of the world and of society, isn't it? Isn't that the tragedy of men in sin? Look at all his activity and his bustling and his business and his excitement and his being thrilled, and the arguments and the disputations and the counter-arguments, the questions and answers and replies, how marvelous it all seems, and yet it's all missing the main thing. Isn't that the tragedy of this world and of this very country this morning? The people in all the parties are dead in trespasses and sins. Isn't it amusing to see how this comes out? If it were not tragic, how amusing it would be. Each one charges the other with selfishness. One says, look at those people, they're out for themselves. They don't pay this tax and they evade this or that. But then the other man's trying to do exactly the same thing. And he's annoyed with the first symptom because he's succeeding more than he is succeeding. What's the matter? Well, the matter is that they're both asleep. They're both dead. And that is why they're both three or four, if you like, doesn't matter what the number is. You can multiply your parties as much as you like. It won't change human nature. And human nature is selfish and self-centered. They talk about principles. They would have us believe, all of them, that they're quite altruistic and are looking on in a calm and a detached manner. Man in sin never does that. He never can. Because he is spiritually dead. And while man is dead to the being of God and his relationship to him and to his true being and dignity as a creation of God... And as a child of God, he never will do anything else. It's impossible, he cannot. He's governed by the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. He sets himself up as a God, always revolving round himself, thinking of nothing and nobody but himself, and his own interest. That's the trouble. And that is man in sin, he's asleep, he's dead. He's unaware of all this, this appalling ignorance, and how appalling it is, with all the knowledge and learning and sophistication, ignorant of the thing that matters supremely above everything. But then, of course, that in turn leads to a very terrible way of living. Life without Christ is a sort of living death. Look at the awful kind of life such people live. The apostle has already been describing it in chapter 4, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. You know, my friends, that's the problem of this country, and that's why I don't stand here to preach politics. I'm here to deal with the great problem, which is not political. It is this, it is this moral, it is this spiritual question. Your country finally will be ruined unless this is dealt with. The decline and fall of the Roman Empire, what was the cause of it? Well, the answer was, it wasn't anything political, it wasn't anything military. It was essentially moral and spiritual, It was the moral rot that set in and it has been the cause of the downfall of most of the great empires. This moral rot that comes in which leads to indolence and then to sin and to lasciviousness and a living for evil and for vice it saps the vitality of a nation as it saps the vitality of a man. And it is all the result of this ignorance that results from sleep or from death. But they're quite unaware of this. They think it's monstrous for intelligent people to be attending a place of worship. Of course, you you attend political meetings, you listen to these people on the television and on the wireless, and you know your culture around. But the old gospel, they think it's so irrelevant and has nothing to do with life. My dear friends, this alone has. And as long as this is neglected, you can do all the others. It'll avail you nothing. The chief problem in this country today, when you're looking at it even industrially or economically or anything else, is the attitude of men and women towards life. By manipulating the political procedures, you don't change that. And while men regard work as a nuisance, I don't care whether they're masters or servants, and while the majority of your people are living for pleasure and indolence and indulgence and the gratification of their lusts, Rather than having a sense of duty and duty to God above all else, loving God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and your neighbor as yourself, whatever class he belongs to, there is no hope. But that is the position. They're asleep, they're dead, they're not aware of this. And it is the gospel alone that enlightens people about this and then think of their terrible danger the danger in which men, apart from Christ, finds himself moving in the direction of eternity subject to death at any moment Oh, how concerned he is about sixpence or whatever it is off the income tax How he argue, argues and gets excited about it and that he may have a few more shillings or a few more pounds here or there or, or, or of this or that And never thinks about himself dying. Oh, he's interested in pensions, of course. And that his widow should have a pension. And that his burial, the payment for his burial, should be provided for. But never a thought about how to die. Never a thought about what's going to happen to him for certain, whatever parties in power, whatever may happen in the world, whether you ban your armaments or not, he's got to do- Never thinks about it. Never thinks about standing before God in eternity and in the judgment and his everlasting destiny pronounced. Asleep? Dead? And there's nothing that can open the eyes of men and women to this but the gospel of Jesus Christ. Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead. So it comes to men. It convicts, but it converts. It also converts. Awake, it says. It shuffles the men. It awakens him. Arise. It puts power in him to, to come out. It calls upon him to escape which being interpreted, of course, means this, that it calls upon him to repent, to realize his awful, tragic, desperate position, and immediately to acknowledge it before God, to see the enormity of it all, the utter folly of it all, the tragedy of such ignorance and darkness,
1: and to come out of it and to
0: leave it. And the moment a man sees these things, he doesn't want to stay there. He hates it all. Love not the world nor the things that are in the world. And the moment a man sees them for what they are and sees himself, he stops loving them, he hates them and he turns away from them. Turn you, turn you, says the gospel and he's very ready to listen and he comes out, he escapes out of his grave, he rises from his bed. As John Bunyan puts it once and forever in his immortal allegory, He rushes from the city of destruction as fast as his feet can carry him. And the message of the gospel is that the world is a city of destruction. It is governed by this prince of the power of the air, this God of this world, and all these infernal powers that the apostle is going to speak of in chapter 6 when he says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, we are not up against men, whoever they are, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places. That's the problem. And the man sees this, and he longs to be out of it, and to escape from it, and he separates himself from it. That's the argument of the apostle here. He says, you are sometimes darkness, but you are now light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Well, the gospel does this second thing. After convicting us, it converts us, and then it brings us into this new life. Awake thou that sleepest. And arise from the dead, and Christ shall shine upon you. Or if you like, Christ shall give you light. What does this mean? Well, I think this is a kind of repetition of the statement of our Lord himself in John 8, verse 12. He says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Oh, that's it. Coming out of this grave, awaking out of this sleep, you come into the broad sunshine of God and of Christ. I am the light of the world. You've been living in caverns. You've been living in caves. You've been down in graves and sepulchres. And you didn't know that there was such a thing as light. You thought that was wonderful. You tried to keep up your courage. You tried to enjoy. Suddenly you're called out into the broad sunshine of a noonday. Christ, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. What's he mean? He means this, my dear friend. He'll give you life itself. And life is light, and light is life. You hath he quickened who are dead in trespasses and sins. That's a part of the light. Giving your life. But then, of course, it refers especially to the understanding. This is the first thing our blessed Lord does for us, is to enlighten the eyes of our understanding. Oh, thank God for this that he enables us to see life truly, he enables us to see ourselves. He brings us into the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And you see, that's why a Christian man he is absolutely different from a man who's not a Christian. He can't help it. He is different. Take how the apostle puts it in this great statement of it in 1 Corinthians 2. You see, he says, we have received not the spirit that is of the world, but the spirit which is of God that we might know the things which are freely given to us of God. But he says, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual, yes, he is Christian. He judgeth, can estimate and understand all things. Yet he himself is, uh, is judged of no man. He has an understanding, but nobody can understand him. And isn't it so absolutely true? If you've never been told yet by a non-Christian that they can't quite understand you, I doubt whether you're a Christian. The moment we become Christians, we can no longer be understood by those who are not Christians. The Christian understandeth all things, yet he himself is understood of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? And here's the answer. But we have the mind of Christ. We are seeing everything in a new way. Yes, it is perfectly true. God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall shine upon thee. And that's what he'll do. He'll give you a glimpse of the glory of God as your Father, as your Savior. He'll give you an understanding of God's purpose, you included, the great plan of redemption and salvation, the ultimate, final consummation of all things in Christ. He'll explain that to you. Well, of course, this is but... Repetition, Paul said it all in chapter 1 of this great epistle. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth even in him. That's it. Christ shall shine upon thee. What's it mean? Well, it means this we shall have fellowship with Christ and we shall walk with him. John in his first epistle writes and he says, Are these things right I unto you, that ye may have fellowship with us? And our fellowship indeed is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's a Christian. A Christian is a man who has fellowship with God and with his Son, Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit. What's it mean? It means this. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And we are to walk in the light as he is in the light. Christ shall shine upon thee, yes. You follow him, and there'll be a bright light always before you. It will reprove and illuminate and expose the evil and the foul, and the ugly and the harmful things that are round and about you. It will tell you to evade them and to hate them as he did. He walks in the middle of the road and you walk after him. Christ the light and you're following him. You're no longer walking in darkness but you're enjoying the light of life. You go through this world as he went. You have entered into the fellowship of the life eternal. It means following Christ enjoying fellowship with him, having this light and this knowledge which he gives and ever sheds upon every question, enjoying in it, reveling in it, and walking in it. That is what the gospel does. Well, very well, it is its great function. The prophet Isaiah looked forward and he said, that's the day that's coming. Arise, shine, for thy light is come. This is what it says. Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead and Christ shall shine upon thee. How does it do this? How does the gospel have this effect? How does it produce it in this world? And you know the answer the apostle gives here? It is this. It is largely through you and me Wherefore? Wherefore, he said. The Lord who said, I am the light of the world, also said, Ye are the light of the world. Ye are the light of the world. Ye don't hide your light under a bushel, he says, but put it on a candlestick. A city that is set upon a hill cannot be hid. So this work of enlightenment takes place in the world through you and me. Let your light, he says, show so shine before men that they may see your good works. And glorify your Father which is in heaven. Oh, says Paul, you were sometimes darkness, but you are now light in the Lord. Walk. As children of the light, have no fellowship with the unfruitful work of darkness. Rather, reprove them. Let your light shine so that men and women looking at you and seeing you will begin to see where they are and what's true of them and to hate what they're doing and to have a horror of where they are and rise out of it because they've seen you, you and your life become a call to them saying, Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead and Christ shall give thee light. You see, that's his whole argument. We are saved to save. We are saved to become channels and means and instruments disseminating this glorious light and delivering men and women from the captivity and the bondage and the terrible danger of sin. It is through us partly. What we are, what we say, our explanation of the gospel, our conversation with people, All that does this. And of course, it does it through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Merely for us to talk doesn't do it. Merely for a man like myself to stand in a pulpit and preach in and of itself doesn't do it. I may utter the right words, but they'll do nothing in and of themselves. I have no power to awaken the sleeper, I have no power to resurrect the dead. But the Spirit of God has. You, hath he quickened, that were dead in trespasses and sin? The statement is not, awake, rise from the dead, and then afterwards Christ will give you light. No, no, it works like this. As he calls, he gives light. It is he who gives the power. In the call to awaken, we are awakened. In the call to rise, we are given power to rise. You remember how you see it all in an illustration in our Lord healing the man with a withered arm. There was a man with a withered arm. They'd done everything they could for him to try to heal him, but nobody could do anything. Our Lord comes to the man and he says, stretch forth thine hand. But the man couldn't. That was his old trouble. It was paralyzed. It was helpless. What's the point of saying stretch forth thy hand to a man whose essential trouble is that he cannot stretch forth his hand. Ah, the answer is this. As the Lord uttered that command, there was power in the command. The ability entered with the words, and the man stretched forth his hand. Thank God for this. Were I to believe this morning that I were in the same position as the politicians, and that it is my words only, and my arguments and demonstrations alone that matter, I would give up in despair, For what we are confronted with is not merely lack of understanding, but natures that are warped, twisted, perverted, evil, foul. And above all, under the control of the prince of the power of the air, the devil, the strong man armed that keepeth his goods in peace. Who am I or any man to meet such a foe? It would be a hopeless, impossible task. But the spirit, the spirit with the word, the Spirit of God, the Spirit that brooded over the original chaos and through whom the energy and the power came saying, let there be light, and there was light. Oh, let us be comforted by this, that as you and I are living this life in the light by the power of the Spirit, and as we speak to men and women, it is not merely us, it is not merely our words, It is the mighty Spirit of God deigning to use us as instruments and channels so that through us the call comes to a dead soul. Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead and Christ shall shine upon thee and they hear and they answer and they come out of the darkness into the light of God streaming from the face of Jesus Christ. Amen.